everyone, and welcome to the Overtime Leader Podcast. I am your host, Jillian Davis, the author of First Time Leader Foundational Tools to Inspire and Enable Your Team and founder of Overtime Leader, where we have been helping a lot of executives over the past few months align on vision, think differently about communication, and feel comfortable navigating the uncertainty that has been brought on by COVID-19. It's been an interesting few months and lots of you know, conversations about what leadership looks like and how do people need to adapt their style when working remotely. I'm sure you have you know, experienced your own self-leadership journey in this time. It's brought forward a lot of self-reflection and um, you know, giving us a little bit of space to think about how do we show up and, and what might we need to change um, an opportunity to design um, our life, our work life, uh, before we settle into this quote unquote new normal. In today's episode, I am thrilled, excited, um, oh, all the words to share the interview I had with Jerry Colonna, who um, I really admire. And I want to, you know, shout out to Alex on my team for getting this organized. Jerry Colonna is the founder and CEO of Reboot.io, uh, which is a um, coaching and leadership development um, company that has made a lot of waves and a lot of impact in um, Silicon Valley. He has a background in um, investment banking and VC and really kind of gets the startup world and also author of Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up, which I highly, highly recommend um, you read. I had the privilege of seeing Jerry at a small event at Second Home um, at the end of last year. It was really refreshing. And I mean this when I say it. I found Jerry's approach extremely grounded. It's very clear that he has done the work very authentic. Uh, I don't think you're, you know, going to get buzzwords out of Jerry or, you know, catching waves of trends. Um, he is very grounded and that really, really resonated with me and what we try to kind of get across to those that we work with and those that listen to this podcast, um, really thinking about the importance of being human when we've often been given um, kind of opposing advice to that as we've grown up, especially in business. So this conversation I thought was extremely timely considering everything that's going on and the importance of being a human in this time of um, crisis and how we need to show up for um, everyone in society, not just ourselves, not just our teams, but thinking beyond that and how we can use this moment to make change, make waves, um, make sustainable difference in creating uh, societies that are better for everybody. Um, we talk a lot about, yeah, the importance of um, journaling and having kind of practices that center us instead of just respond, uh, sorry, reacting um, to all this change and crisis and, um, yeah, planning, et cetera, like hype. And I'm, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm noticing that as we close out, you know, everyone's in a rush to close out 2020 with this view to plan 2021 and it's going to be so different and better. And I kind of want to check in with everyone and make sure that we've had the right learnings in 2020 is that we don't 
we can't affect what's going to happen in the future. So don't get too attached to any 2021 plans yet. It's really important to have a vision that inspires you and inspires the team. It's important to have direction, but don't fall into that trap of thinking, you know, oh, well, I'm just going to get through this, rush through it. Next year is going to be better. We don't know what's going to happen, right? So stay present, stay grounded, stay focused. Um, but yeah, just check yourself a little bit. So I am sure you are going to gain a lot from this episode and I will now get that started for you. It's really great to have you on today and I know you are going to have a lot of words of wisdom um, for our listeners. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show and I can't guarantee, I can guarantee words. I can't guarantee words of wisdom. <laughs> so. I have a lot to go through with you. And obviously for context, you know, I, I saw you speak in December at Second Home and was just like taking copious notes. Um, and then, you know, we've all been really affected in this time of both, I think, you know, with lockdown, with coronavirus, um, there's a lot politically going on. It's been a crazy time. And I recall in March, um, I was advising founders who went into panic mode. We're getting a lot of, you know, advice from their boards or their advisors, fire everyone, cut costs. And it just, you know, it felt very reactive and um, wanted to talk to you through around, you know, how do we not get caught up in that and instead respond and have considered, you know, human approaches in this time because it is uncertain. It is not, you know, there is no playbook to this time. Um, and how do leaders at this point show up um, in this moment? So I open question, I'm keen to just hear what you've, you know, noticed coming up and, and maybe something that you've noticed yourself saying over and over again to people that you've been mentoring and talking to. Oh, well, boy, howdy, there's a lot in there. Uh, maybe I'll work backwards from your last question, which was, what have I been finding myself going back to, I would say that um, I think that like everyone, I, I have both experienced myself and witnessed um, the profound reactions to what seemed to be a kind of never ending uh, experience of um, the reordering of the way we thought things were. You know, here in the States, um, in addition to what felt like a global economic collapse following a, an unprecedented health crisis, we also have had a constitutional crisis. We've had a reckoning of millennia of racial injustice. And uh, just for fun, we now have raging wildfires, the likes of which the country has never seen. And black men continue to be killed or maimed or injured on the streets of our cities. And that was just today. <laughs> and I think that in, in light of all of that, many of us feel buffeted, beleaguered, at our wit's end, scared, unsure. Some of us have used that as a time period to re-examine priorities. Some of that, some of us have used that to actually relocate 
and express those reordered priorities by moving to new places. And I guess the metaphor that I have turned to time and time again during this time period comes to me from one of my teachers, Pema Chodron. And in the book, Comfortable with Uncertainty, she writes that she likens our experience of being human to the weather. And like the weather, we are always shifting and changing, right? She's describing our emotions. And she says that the task is to sit like a mountain in the midst of a hurricane, which is an extraordinary image if you think about it. And the thing that I have come to as I sat with that image quite a bit was the realization that the mountain in the midst of the hurricane is actually a dangerous metaphor. Because if you're not careful, you may think that to be a mountain in the hurricane means to be unyielding, stubborn, fixed. And I think that that's the danger. And so what I've come to understand is that times like this, when say investors call and say, sell everything, fire everybody, being the mountain doesn't mean saying yes or no to that. It means uh, going back to purpose, meaning, community, values, the things that define us as humans, and that that becomes the source of the mountain, if you will. And so what I've been advising clients and reminding myself of is uh, to ask myself and my clients questions like, what's important to me? What do I believe to be true about the world? And because you've read my book, you know these, some of these questions. What kind of leader am I? What kind of company do I want to build? Um, I think now more than ever, the questions that turn us back to original purpose, original meaning, are the questions that serve as anchors in the middle of the storm. So hopefully that was a complete answer. <laughs> no, very, um, you know, very profound, very thought provoking. It's hard, um, you know, not to listen and, and apply it to, to my own experience in the past five months. And I think there is this, um, and this came up in your book, this like, importance of letting go, right? When I think we've all been taught something as simple as just, oh, I'm going to jump on a flight. You know, actually I was in Europe and, and I've, I've relocated in this time, but now it's nothing certain. Um, and, and how, how do we go back and go within and go back, connect to purpose and community um, in these times to, to feel grounded you know, how do leaders turn into this not knowing as a power, you know, instead of it feeling like a weakness? Well, you know, implicit in your question is, in effect, the answer to the process question, right? Because you asked a how question. 
And um, the first thing I'll bring your attention to is that implicit in your question is the problematic stance in the first place. The problematic stance in the first place is the belief that the leader is the one who has the answers. And that is false. When a leader holds the belief that they're supposed to have the answers, they are setting themselves up for massive disappointment. Um, At best, they will come across as micromanaging. And at worst, they will be burned out. Um, and And the organization will not scale. Um. There's a kissing cousin to the notion of the leaders having all the answers, and that is the authoritarian leader, right? The leader is the one who makes all the decisions, and they go right next to each other. And in both cases, the result are organizations where human beings are stifled, where innovation is um, uh, stultified and uh, where there is no thriving. And then when you uh, plop that organization in the midst of a storm, as we have been for these last eight months or whatever it's been, you find the organization lacking resource and resilience because the singular individual cannot hold it all together. One of the most profound lessons of this time, I'm a Buddhist, so I'm going to make reference to Buddhist concepts. There are two very, very important concepts being demonstrated every day right now. One is the concept of impermanence, which is that things are falling apart all the time, including your perception that things are not falling apart. That's always falling apart, right? And so we grieve over and over and over again. Because what do we grieve? We don't grieve uh, the fact that I can't go to a ball game this fall. Because I didn't know if I could go to the ball game or not. We grieve the loss of the memory of the past and we grieve the loss of plans for the future. And neither one of those is substantive, right? Each one, neither one has, has substance associated with it, but we grieve them nonetheless. So that's impermanence. But the other uh, Buddhist concept is equally important at a time like this. And that is the concept of interdependence. All things arise codependently and not in the psychological terms. Another way to, to, to look at this in this time is, I don't care where you live, Jillian. I need you to wear a mask. And you need me to wear a mask. Because that's the way the virus works. I can be literally halfway around the world, and I still need you to wear a mask. Because if you don't wear a mask and the person next to you could get sick who could get the next person sick and so on and so on and so on until I'm sick. And so I need you. And to take it all the way back, this is a time where 
the interdependence of all people within an organization is viscerally, undeniably clear. We cannot pretend anymore that the authoritarian, know-it-all leader is going to come down from the mountaintop and save us. Let's hope that in all the ways the world has changed because of this time period, let's hope that finally we'll put that myth to rest. I'm sure there's people listening right now that just hearing that, they can feel a weight off of their shoulders. But say you've been conditioned to believe by maybe your the school system, by the people that have played a role in your life um, still, that that is the way because that had been the way. How does someone like that in a time like now where, you know, I think we're all kind of feeling collective burnout, um, where do they start? You know, what's the first thread that they pull to start this, this journey of going, okay, it's not all on me. I need to empower. I need to enable the team. Well, let's go back to your image for a moment where you imagined empathetically that the people listening to this all of a sudden had felt a weight taken from their shoulders. Let's imagine that for a moment. The first step is putting down the weight of no longer useful belief systems. The first step is unburdening yourself from structures that no longer served us. The first step is saying to oneself, I am not five anymore, waiting for the world, for someone to come rescue. I am an adult. I have agency. That agency may be limited given my status, given my uh, role, power, status in the world. But I still have some agency in my life, agency that I did not have when I was five. How I choose to use that agency is a major determinant on my experience as a person. That's the first step. The second step is to then sit still, as I often say, or stand still as I write in my book, and to really look inside and ask oneself one questions like, how did I get formed? Why do I believe the world, for example, is a dog-eat-dog world and I better get them before they get me? And maybe that belief isn't true, meaning maybe there's something more true than the belief system that I grew up with. And then from that place, start to define what it is that I'd like to see the world be. Oh, it feels like a lifting of a burden when I no longer have to be an authoritarian as a leader. Oh, okay. Well, how would I like the world to be led? 
Oh, collaboratively, shoulder to shoulder. Okay. How about I start doing that today? You hear the agency in that observation? Right? Um, but as often things, the first thing, the first step is always just kind of pausing and putting the weight down. You talk often about, um, I think I heard this specifically in the podcast you did with Tim, Tim Ferriss around your, you know, journaling practice. And I listened to this mid lockdown and I went for a long walk, which was a practice I started that was very good. But yeah, I, I used to fall into the trap of only doing those journaling practices when things got challenging and now, you know, do a daily commitment and notice that in this time when it almost felt like heightened self-awareness, maybe because we didn't have the same distractions, but I was so aware and journaling really played such a big part. And I think it speaks to, you know, what you're saying with, with moving this weight off and just taking that moment and checking in with yourself. Um, do you have any examples? And I know that there's, there's one in your, in your book where you've seen the impact of something as simple as, and I say that with, in quotations, as simple as, you know, a regular journaling, um, practice that's impacted a leader, uh, who started, who started that. A specific example doesn't come to mind, but I can, I can cite the incredible number of times where um, an even more simple practice, simpler than journaling, comes to mind. And it's, uh, it's the infamous way I open a lot of my talks, which is I will step out in, on stage in some capacity, and then I let silence descend, which is a very useful and dramatic tool. Um, and, and then I will pause and I will say, because usually people will introduce me as this is the man who makes people cry, right? And I will say um, something like, well, you want to know the secret to my making people cry? I ask them a simple question. And very dramatically, I say, how are you? No, really, don't bullshit me. How are you? And I ask it slowly. And I look in people's eyes. And I embody something um, that is genuine and true, which is I actually give a damn about the answer to that question. And I look at someone as if I could see their soul. And invariably, they start to cry. Now, I can't imagine a simpler practice than to simply pause once a day in the morning, perhaps, journal or not, and to ask oneself, how am I feeling? No, really, how am I feeling? Because we're socialized to not pay attention to that stuff. It's useless, we're told because it doesn't result in more money or higher grades or more status or better apartments and flats and whatever you want to call your house. 
it just results in a lighter heart. So that's the simple practice. And when I start introducing that within organizations, a funny thing starts to happen. People start to tell the truth to one another. And as a consequence, trust goes up. And as a consequence of that, creativity and innovation go up. And a consequence of that, burnout goes down. And all of a sudden, the people get to do some really good work. All because we actually care about each other. Yeah, and the sense of like being heard, which I think gets lost. That point of people, you don't have to respond always to what people's opinions are, what, you know, ideas they have, but it's that notion of I felt hurt and that power of being able to, to listen intently, um, listen to care instead of listening for, to respond. So I want to, um, actually, I'm curious, can I ask, how do you feel about being known as um, the person that makes people cry? <laughs> um uh, it, it makes me smile. And I almost always explain that I don't set out to make people cry. I set out to allow people to feel. And the consequence of that is that oftentimes the first thing that they feel is the sadness that they've been holding back. And that is mitigated by the fact that very quickly people then start to feel the other things like joy. Because once you open up the floodgates and allow people to feel, you are in for one rocking time because they just feel it all. And when I watch people feel, uh, it's glorious. So I don't mind it. Um, I often joke about it. You know, when I say to people, when people write to me, social media and say, oh, I read your book or I want to get your book. I say, well, don't forget to bring the tissues. Um, <laughs> and it's a true fact. We, we actually briefly considered packing a small package of tissues, facial tissues with the book, just to, to, just to let people know. And it's okay to cry. I find myself saying that quite a bit, actually. You know, it's... Uh... Well, but that's a radical act. Jillian, I mean, think of the number of times that as children, one of the things that our parents inadvertently teach us is that it's not okay to cry, right? It goes like this, shh, don't cry. But I'm hurting, shh, don't cry. Wait a minute, <laughs> that's not comforting. <laughs> and it's just a natural, you know, human reaction, just like, getting angry, being happy. You just have to let, let these things happen. So something I, I find myself, and I don't know if you're in a similar position, but, you know, f specifically for founders who are um, in between people like us who are like, you know, abundance and um, empower. And um, some of the more traditional style that comes from the venture capitalists. And I know you've been on both sides. I notice there's a lot of influence from um, boards and 
and VCs um, on new and young founders and not enough people saying go inward and find the answer within, right? Like it's great to be surrounded by advice and very smart people who have lots of experience, but your company, your decision. Do you have any, like, any thoughts? Just, I guess, I don't have a, a big question, but any thoughts on how to help people understand? And I, I remember for me as a new, when I was an early manager and I was going and seeking mentorship with everyone, what do you think? What do you think? And then I realized, oh, actually, I need to, I need to own the, the answer. I need to own the decision. Um, yeah. Where, how do we help people recognize that and, and that it's okay to go against sometimes advice from very smart and experienced people? Well, I, I think here again in your question is, is implicit is the answer to your own question, right? Um, you said that um, until you understood that you had to go within, you were always kind of desperately asking, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And so um, where I get curious is um, why do you not believe your own thoughts? Or more specifically, why do you not trust your own instincts? That's a curious question. And here again, I think for many people, we are um, socialized not to trust our instincts because we blame ourselves for whatever suffering that we have rather than curiously uh, being involved in, in uh, the inquiry process behind the things that we struggle with. And so if you walk around carrying guilt and shame, of course you're not going to trust your instincts. And of course you're going to outsource to somebody else the answers to your life's questions. You know, I've seen it. Like, it's a lot, not easier, actually, in the long run. But, you know, oh, well, someone in our board said, that we should go ahead and hire this person. And it's like, well, what do you think? Like, well, I'm not really sure, but they know best. And it just becomes easier to be like, well, if it doesn't work out, it's not my, I can, I can pass blame on, onwards. Um, uh, well, you just did something very sophisticated and, and wise. One of the consequences of the authoritarian leader is everyone else becomes infantilized. Right. And so what you just described is the way I might give up my adult agency, hand it off to somebody else by saying, well, they must know better. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so the, the so there again, I, I, that's that's when organizations and uh, the people who might report to us, because oftentimes we're on the receiving end of that, just tell me what to do, Jerry, right? Um, what's happening is that, that I am participating in my own diminishment. I am infantilizing myself. And I am presuming that someone who might be older or white or male or uh, richer or more powerful is in fact wiser and nothing could be further from the truth, right? I am, uh, and, and the socialized structure reinforces the notion of projecting onto people with power the fact that they have the answers. 
when I think that the person who has the answers is the person who's closest to the problem. <laughs> yes. Which goes back to the importance of within your team moving away from that authoritarian That's micromanager. Right. It's the people that are closest to the problem that have the answers. Yeah. And building that culture where they're enabled to give the answer, <laughs> to go find the answer. That's right. Looking forward, now no one has a, a crystal ball and no one has been here before. Um, nobody has the playbook. And I think it can, there's often this illusion that, you know, everyone else has it figured out. And, you know, when you're on the inside of multiple places, it's, it doesn't take long to realize that nobody does and everyone's just trying their best. As a leader going forward, and, and an, I mentioned, you know, this kind of collective burnout that I definitely sensed in August when I think we realized, oh, this is, it's not, we can't band-aid this anymore. This new way of working, um, the political stuff is not changing. Um, you know, like you said, black men are still getting um, maimed, shot in, in the U.S. It's, it's a lot. And collectively as a community moving forward, moving, kind of thinking about this as an opportunity to design a better future. How do we come together in these times and, and move forward instead of feeling overwhelmed, um, burdened, exhausted, et cetera? Well, let me bring you back to something. How did you feel when I said to you, despite how far away you live, I need you to wear a mask? Connected. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So the answer to your question is to highlight and elevate and surface the ways we need each other. I didn't ask your political persuasion. I didn't ask anything of you economically. I connected with you empathetically and truthfully. And the result was, despite this strange mediation that we have, we're not even looking at each other via video, right? We're just talking to each other. Despite the technology-enabled mediation and the lack of intimacy that that can bring, all of a sudden we could drop into an intimate, true, empathetic connection. And dare I say it, you felt better. Mm -hmm. That to me is the best and clearest evidence of the fact that recognizing that we need each other, recognizing the importance of community is how we get through this time. That's why that symbolism of I need you to wear a mask and you need me to wear a mask works so well because it's both true mm -hmm. from the virus's perspective and symbolic. Very true. Very powerful. Any final thoughts, any questions that you have? No questions, but I'll share what lifts my heart in these times. I know that the virus will end. I know that uh, the world is not quite ready to end despite the impending asteroid coming on November 3rd, right around the time for the US elections. I know that we will survive as a species. What lifts me is when I think about 
the potential and possibility that comes out of this time. You know, as I've said a number of times to people, maybe now we'll put people ahead of prophets. Maybe. Maybe now we will see that climate change is real, that Black Lives Matter, that science is important, that we need each other, that we should end the war on poor people, and that we need access to clean air, clean water, good health care, shelter, food for all people. Maybe now we'll finally realize that the world isn't made up of dogs trying to eat each other, but of human beings tasked with taking care of this glorious planet. Maybe. That lifts my spirit when I think of the world in that way.